Welcome to the Tiki Taka Podcast. I'm Holly Williams. When I die, I want to go to zone. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm Jeff Wall. You got a buzz! <laughs> god damn it. I'm Espandi Arberahini. Wow, now I'm tied for guests. We like to dive a little deeper than the beautiful game itself. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tiki Taka podcast. But it's not just any episode. It is a bit of a special one. Throughout the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the Women's World Cup and gave it nothing but praise. Even though it has come to an end, the praise continues. Joining me today is Blair Newman, a freelance football writer from Scotland who you might recognize from some of the top UK football publications such as TIFO Football, The Guardian, 442, These Football Times, and many more. This summer, Blair created a blog where he tactically analyzed every match of the Women's World Cup in France, from the group stages all the way up to the final. Today, Blair and I will dive deep into this year's competition, from what happened on the pitch to the impact it will have off the pitch. But first off, Blair, thank you for joining me, and how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. Our pleasure. Um, I guess we'll start off kind of from the beginning. What made you decide to create a blog for the Women's World Cup this year? I, th- I think I saw it as a, as a learning opportunity, to be honest. Um, I'd never really paid much attention to the World Cup before. I remember watching the England team in uh, 2015 as they got to the semis, but I was really looking forward to, to the tournament this time around. Um, obviously, Scotland qualifying was was a big thing for me as well. And uh, the Scottish football, the Scottish women's football had been on TV last year, which had sort of given me a bit of insight into the team. So I thought, well, I, you know, I was really looking forward to, to watching it in full this time around. And I found myself taking notes on every game, you know, and analysing every game. So I just thought, why not put it all into some sort of blog and see if it can spark some discussion. Did you find it hard at all to keep keep up with every game? Yes. You know, especially, <laughs> especially during the group stages, right? Where... Yeah, uh, there's three games a day. Yeah, it was it was crazy. But it, what I did was I just did it in the evening. So if I had time, I'd just sort of do the writing in the evening because, like you say, it's hard to analyse every single game in depth. Um, so that's what I would do. I just wherever I had time, I'd, I'd update it. I think there's still a lot of games I haven't really sort of analysed for the blog. But if I've got time, I'll I'll go through them at some point and just sort of make sure it's fully complete. Yeah, well, that's awesome because I know it really helped me throughout the tournament as well because I wasn't able to catch every game every day, especially mm. in the earlier stages. So going back and checking out your blog once I found it um, and keeping up, that kind of really that really helped me throughout the tournament. I can I can say that for myself. But we'll start off like from a tactical standpoint because that's what you were writing about. You were analyzing the games from a more uh, tactical perspective. Um, I, I know you said like this was kind of the first full World Cup, Women's World Cup that you watched at least. But um, how do you think the women's game has improved? Because it seems that um, you know positions have have improved over the years, and I think from a tactical standpoint, the women's game ha- has really evolved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really talk too much about the the development of it over the time because, as I say, this is the first time I've really really paid attention to it all the way through. Um, what I was really impressed with was was the some of the press, and I thought was really good. Um, there was a few teams that really impressed me in the way they they sort of pressed high at the pitch with like Sweden, 
Um, I thought Italy were good at that as well. The USA were, were brilliant at sort of adapting the way they pressed from game to game. So there's a few different teams that caught my eye in, on that front. And I think, um, I, I don't want to compare it too much to the men's game, but I feel like there's maybe more scope for pressing high in the women's game because teams maybe aren't so worried about the threat in behind. I don't know what you would think about that. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree in that because um, you, I, I think what I've noticed throughout the years in women's football is that they've it's never really been an issue attacking-wise. I think many teams have always had, and I think you can even say this for anything, like it's very, it's not very, but it's easier maybe to develop attacking players as it is defensive and especially even goalkeepers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I kind of noticed. I, I know a lot of people that I followed on Twitter that were also kind of, you know, um, following the tournament was, was stating that the goalkeeping this year was just sublime. Like it was just yeah. really, really good compared to other years. And I think there's, there's many, many examples of that throughout the tournament. So I think in that sense, the game is really developing, um, even just positionally. Yeah. Yeah. But, I would agree. So, so I thought some of the goalkeeping was, was fantastic. I thought Van Vienendal was, was amazing. Yeah, and even um, just some of the saves that, that were being made. And uh, um, there was a bit of a question, too, because in my opinion, from, from a U.S. standpoint, I know I'm Canadian, but I do follow the U.S. Um, women's national team quite a bit. Um, just I thought maybe Ashlyn Harris would be would get more minutes, but she was actually – she actually didn't um, – appear in the World Cup at all, which I was a little bit surprised of. And we'll get to kind of maybe um, a mar- managerial standpoint on some decisions that were made mm-hmm. from a few managers in a little bit. But I was kind of thinking, can you really compare any maybe playing styles or tactical systems from the World Cup to clubs around Europe? I, I almost kind of found, in my opinion, that there were times where the U.S. women's national team, for example, kind of resembled Manchester City at times, which right. I found was pretty interesting. What I, what I noticed was the way they pressed. I thought I thought it was quite similar to Liverpool um, on the men's side. You know, Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool side because they have that front three really narrow. Whereas a lot of teams when they play in a four-three-three, the wingers sort of drop back. Do you know what I mean? So normally it's a four-five-one, whereas the USA were just a four-three-three with the front three sort of very aggressive and the wingers very aggressive and pressing and sort of keeping their position in that line rather than tracking the opposition's fullbacks and ending up back in their own half. So, that, you know, there's maybe an element of um, of Liverpool in the way that they pressed. What, what was it that made you think about Man City? Was it the way they were p- passing it about, the rotations? or It was a little bit more um, the way they played with their fullbacks yeah, and how yeah. the, uh, the attacking mids would kind of try to create those like space and move up in the half spaces. Mm-hmm, mm, yeah. um, there was definitely a little, a little bit of that that I noticed. And defensively, they were just very aggressive, just mm-hmm. right away trying to win win the ball back, which, yes, now that you mention it, it, it does resemble Liverpool as well. But I just kind of had a, a question on who who do you think was the most impressive team outside the two finalists? I think the team that really sort of impressed me throughout the tournament was Sweden. Um, I thought that they were really well organised throughout the whole tournament. There wasn't a game that they had where they sort of seemed at sixes and sevens, whereas I think most of the other teams had at least one game where they just didn't look up to it. Sweden, in every single match, apart from maybe the USA game in the group stage where they rested, I think, five or six players, 
they looked really, really organised. I'd also mention France because I think they got a lot of criticism uh, for, for, for exiting the tournament the way they did. But to be fair to them, they did lose to USA. You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a, a bad quarterfinal defeat. It was, in my eyes, they lost to the only team in the tournament that were definitely better than they were. I think if France had somehow got through that game, they probably would have won the whole tournament. So I was impressed by the way they played as well. They just lacked a plan B, you know. When, when, when it wasn't working against the USA, France just lacked that plan B. And um, I, I would kind of have to say, well, I guess going to your Sweden comment, were you a little bit surprised that um, the Netherlands made it out of that of their mm. semifinals? I was a little bit, yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I wasn't that impressed by the Netherlands throughout the whole tournament. Um, in the group stage, I actually thought they were quite lucky to get ahead of Canada. Uh, I don't know what you think about that as a, as a Canadian, but um, they, they ended up in the good side of the draw, I guess, the Netherlands, and then sort of Van Wienendal helped them through the game against Japan. They got a little bit lucky in that game, if I'm honest. And then the, the quarterfinals against Italy, I think Italy were just absolutely knackered. Um, so the Netherlands sort of got through that quite easily. And then the Sweden game was really, really tight. And I, I thought Sweden were going to beat the Netherlands. I thought they'd have more about them than the Netherlands. But you've got to give credit, I guess, where it's due. You know, I think I said on Twitter at one point, it's it's more about not getting in the way of your best players. And to be fair to Serena Wiegman, she set her team up to try and sort of get her front three on the ball a lot of the time. So I think, you know, I'm not massively uh, sort of, gutted that Sweden didn't get to the final because I don't know if it would have been a great game but I was a bit surprised they, they didn't get past the Netherlands Yeah I I, I guess I, I kind of said from the beginning of the tournament that the Netherlands was kind of a team to watch for me and um, I'm just kind of a Dutch football fan in general um, because Canada don't usually, well they don't really make it in on the men's side and the women's side to me um, as Im- impressive as they can be, I just kind of find um, developmentally over the past couple of years they've kind of plateaued. Okay. And, um, is this they, the Cana- is this the Canadian women's team you're, you're the, talking about? The women's team, right? Okay. Yeah, I think. Um, you know, I guess because the U.S. and Canada have kind of been near the top of women's football for a little while now, mm-hmm. and um, with Europe and. Asia and Africa catching up kind of to the quality that more so the USA have. Um, I just kind of find that Canada's plateaued, but, but going back to my original point of how, like, I'm just a Dutch football fan. So I kind of root for the men's or the women's side, um, in any international tournament. So when it came to the, the Netherlands Canada match, I was more so rooting for the Netherlands, but I do see how they struggled a little bit against Canada. And you're right. There, there was, Really, it could have gone either way, and there was at times where you thought they wouldn't top the group, mm-hmm. um, but then of course they did. And then by by the Sweden match, I just kind of think um, they were maybe getting figured out, and they just looked a little tired to me as well. They only mm-hmm. played sixteen out of their twenty three players. They pretty mm-hmm. much played the same, roughly the same lineup um, throughout throughout each match, but. Whereas if you look at the USA, they, they played 21 out of 23, which really is only the two backup goalkeepers who didn't make an appearance, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting to me. So I guess we'll kind of go to the manager standpoint now. Um, how did you find the managing 
was this tournament just because I find there was a bit of a conversation struck a couple times specifically against um, when England played against the USA, Phil Neville and Jill Ellis made um, some decisions and changes in their lineup. So how do you think either team, I guess, led their, or sorry, how do you think either manager led their teams to the semifinals and finals respectively? Um, I think Phil Neville with England, he was, he maybe overthought what he needed to do in the semifinal. I think going into that game with, with USA overseas, it's the biggest game of the tournament for England. And I think he, he made a few sort of changes of, of personnel and a slight change of shape that I don't think really worked. He brought Rachel Daly in on the right wing and she seemed to sort of get in the way of Lucy Bronze a little bit. And then he put Nikita Paris sort of as a second striker. And that sort of totally took away her ability to get on the ball and, and face goal because that's what she does as a winger. She gets on the ball... And then she can really quickly turn and, and attack the goal. Whereas in that position, she was always trying to move around and find space and, and have her back to goal all the time. And that's not really where you want, you know, where you want Nikita Paris to be, in my opinion. So I think Phil Neville got that wrong, to be honest. And I think he made a few, and he made a few changes of personnel and a few sort of tactical or shape changes. But in terms of the way they actually played. I don't think he adapted enough. I think England were, were very set in trying to play through the lines and trying to sort of break the US midfield line. And it sort of became apparent very early on that that wasn't going to happen because the USA just sat off and, and were very compact defensively. And we can get into Jill Ellis and how great I think she's been um, in a minute. But I think in that game, the way England play wasn't really working and they didn't adapt. And I think while I admire managers that say they're not going to compromise on their philosophy or whatever, I'm definitely more in the camp of if you're playing the USA, you need to adapt because you, you know you're playing a team that's almost definitely better than you are in terms of personnel and everything else. So if you're not going to adapt to them, you know they're probably going to adapt to you and, and just obliterate you in some way. And I think to be honest, that game could have been a lot a lot more than than two one USA. And England got a little bit unlucky with, with um, missing the penalty and, and they had a very close offside goal called off. But other than that, there was a lot of moments where the USA, I think, could have put the game to bed. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't hugely, wasn't hugely impressed by Phil Neville. I've got to be honest in this, in this first tournament, there's a few other games where it didn't quite work out for 100%, like Cameroon and, and Scotland, where, and even the Argentina game, where they really struggled to break Argentina down. You know, this is a team that I think is mainly part-time or amateur and, they just defended in a low block and England really struggled to get the goal against them. So um, I don't want to be too critical of Phil Neville because he got into the semi-final, you know, but I just wasn't hugely impressed by him. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what your opinion was on him and, and also on Joel Ellis because I'm a, I'm a big fan of Joel Ellis based on this tournament. And I've been reading a lot of articles throughout this tournament sort of trying to get to know her a bit more as a, as a person and as a manager. She seems really impressive to me, but a lot of people seem quite down on her as a, as a coach. Yeah, I noticed that as well, too, especially um, I know when the the 23-woman squad was um, announced, there was a lot of questions on who she had kind of picked to, to bring to France this summer. Um, but overall, I think... Jill Ellis was very impressive throughout the tournament. I kind of maybe thought that, like a part of me thought this year would would be the year that uh, the U.S. gets knocked off and, mm-hmm. and wouldn't 
um, win back-to-back World Cups. But I, I think, yeah, people need to give her a lot of a lot more credit than than they have been giving her, and and hopefully now she does get the proper credit she deserves. But it, it also just kind of makes me feel like this might be her last World Cup as right. as a manager for for the U.S. for the U.S. women's team. Would you would you well, say well, that as well? Oh, I, I, to be honest, I don't know enough about the ins and outs of 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 the U.S. and their plan to to, to guess at that, Holly. I, I, what, is it is it just a case of she's won it all and and there's no point carrying on? Do you think? Or yeah, I, I just I, and also I just feel like because um, come 2023, the next World Cup that the that the U.S. will participate in, um, I just there'll be a lot of change mm-hmm. in the. In U.S. soccer, a lot of there's a lot of players on this squad now that I don't think will will play in that in that tournament, and it all depends on kind of who they who they bring up next, and if if she's able to kind of continue her success with with a new group of players. Although I do I do find that a, a lot of the players, a good chunk of the players now, there's you can see the new the new talent kind of rising with Samantha Mewis, um, Rose Lavelle, stuff like that, but. Then there's a good chunk of players who are kind of reaching their mid thirties, early thirties, who m- might not be be part of the squad come come next World Cup. Yeah, so there's going to be a bit of a rebuilding job there. You think? I think so. Yeah, for for U.S. soccer's and and just going back to Canada soccer as well. I think there there needs to be a bit of a rebuild mm-hmm. for them as well. Um, I noticed. I noticed with Canada, a lot of the play. Like I'm again, I'm quite new to to women's football, I guess in general. But I noticed with Canada that there's a lot of players there that are quite. That they're still in college. Is that is that a good thing for Canada or a bad thing? Because that seems a bit strange to me that they're not playing professional football. Like players like Jesse Fleming, for instance. Yeah. No, I agree. And see, I, I was actually kind of going to bring this up as well. Maybe ask you how it how it really is in, in the UK because. Um, over here in Canada, there is no, there is no women's league, right? They either have to go to the U.S. There's the National Women's Soccer League, or they'd have to go to Europe. And a lot of the times, they're even like we don't have a good college university system for soccer in general in Canada. So I was kind of going to ask how how it is in the U.K. If 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 men or women are playing in I guess they're playing in youth academies and stuff like that, right? Yeah, it's, it's not so much a college or a university thing here. It's just they they sort of play at, at, at club level, at, at local youth level, and then they work their way up through academies and will get scouted, and, and that's how it works. I don't think there's any real connection between the, the universities and, and the team. Although there are some universities that play in, in the leagues here in Scotland, um, in, the, in, the, in the Scottish Professional Football League, but... Usually, uh, also just just beneath the Scottish Professional Football League, should I say? But uh, there's no real connection there, so I just find it quite strange to see players that are still going through their studies, but they're also amazing footballers that are representing their country at World Cups. Yeah, that is cool. It kind of makes me a bit jealous, but um, <laughs> <laughs> because it's just I, I find, in, again, in a sense that Canada just plateaued or kind of not really keeping up with with how things are around the world just because you know Canada have have been competitive on the world stage in in women's soccer for quite a bit of time but they're kind of like 
just riding, you know, the tales of the U.S. or they're kind of in the U.S.'s shadows because we use their NCAA college system basically um, mm-hmm. in order for to get scholarships in order to for for athletes to kind of you know pursue their dreams and stuff like that or they have to kind of pick up and go over to Europe. There was there is a um, a an eighteen year old who was on the squad for Canada, Jordan Heidema, and she yeah. back in she just graduated high school. She's yeah, eighteen years old and she actually just signed for PSG. So that was like PSG women's so that's unheard of kind of especially okay. for us over here. And, and is it seen as, is it seen as a good thing that she's just gone straight to in my opinion, yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of that's kind of what you need to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, I guess it depends on how these athletes where they want to take their careers, because obviously, going to school you're still studying and then being an athlete kind of part time in both, right, half and half. Mm-hmm. But if you're just going from high school straight to a club in Europe, like I think that that's huge, and that and that's where, in my opinion. Canada soccer needs to go. I was looking at at the squad that was brought, and um, only a few of them play in Europe, and only a few of them play in the NWSL. Either a lot of them don't have a, a team, a club team that they play for, or like you said, a, a few of them are kind of still playing at in their for their school. So I kind of just think that that's where they need. To, that's what needs to happen. For Canada soccer, but I don't. It's not really looked at looked that way over here. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, I I kind of find um, interesting. But if if they kind of if they want to compete more seriously and actually maybe raise a trophy, then I think that's kind of what they need to do, and just maybe invest more money like they do over in Europe. Mm. But, um, am I right in saying right say the Canadian men have got their own? There's a new, there's a professional team in, in Canadian men's soccer now. There is, yeah. Um, the Canadian Premier League. It's in. It's uh, going on right now. It's an inaugural season. So right. I think that would be that's huge for Canadian men's men's soccer. And we've already kind yeah. of seen. Um, there was recently the Gold Cup. It's like the Concacaf tournament. Um, I think it was Mexico just beat USA. It was actually yesterday as well, or sorry, Sunday as well. But um, Canada did a decent job in that tournament as well, which kind of gave people a little bit of hope. And I think it's just kind of like the slow rise of Canadian soccer, shall I say, because I I think that having a league really helps. Mm. Is it just just the case of competing with ice hockey and, and other sports? that makes it hard to have professional leagues in Canada, or is it just the lack of investment? Um, I think it's... I could see it being a little bit of both. Um, Canada is definitely a hockey country. Um, that's what yeah. they're good at, you know, are the the men and women's team nationally do, do well in the Olympics and stuff like that. But I, I also think it's just an investment. Um, I don't know if can't like they want to invest in 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 a league especially possibly a women's league but i think expanding the nwsl to have canadian teams would be would be a a place to start for sure maybe having its own league would be tough because 
if if you look at it, um, the CWHL, which is which was a Canadian women's hockey league, a professional league, just folded after yeah. um, I'm not too sure how many years it was around, but you just kind of have to think if if a hockey league in Canada couldn't survive for women, it kind of makes you wonder if if a soccer league would mm. or a football league would, right? So yeah. that's kind of yeah. what I think that just maybe expanding um, the National Women's Soccer League would would for Canadian teams would help in that sense. Yeah, that, that certainly sounds like a good idea to me. Having the the American teams and the Canadian teams in the same in the same competition. Yeah, because it's essentially like the the MLS. Um, yeah. For the women, because a lot of the MLS teams have kind of, um, like, parented a, a, a woman's team as well, right? So, um, but I, I I just want to get back to the tournament really quick because I saw um, recently when I was kind of uh, writing the show notes and everything that you're anti VAR. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's right. So yeah, how, yeah. how do you how did you find VAR in this tournament because? Um, at least in the 100% in the group stage, and then maybe in the, the round of 16 or something like that, it was there was a stoppage every every single game, pretty much for in yeah. some case for VAR. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty openly not a fan of VAR on a pretty on a sort of like a fundamental level of I don't want football being interfered with in the sense that it slows the game down, it disrupts the flow of the game. Um, and I just don't think on that very basic level that I like it aesthetically. And I get that people can, you know, people have different opinions on that because it's all about, you know, personal perception. But for me, it also, even if we go beyond that and look at actually how do we apply something like this in in football, I don't know how it's going to work because, uh, and I think the Women's World Cup was it was a good example of it. But to be honest, uh, looking back at the Men's World Cup and, and thinking about that, it was pretty controversial there too. Uh, I remember Croatia had a penalty given against them in the final against France for handball, I think, on Ivan Perisic, and that, that could easily have not been given. The problem I have with VAR is, is, and I don't know what your opinion is on it, but it's that it tries to make things black and white when they're not black and white and they can't be black and white. You know, things like handball, for me, are always going to be subjective because we can't guess at whether a player intentionally made himself bigger. We can't, we can't accurately estimate that. I mean short of having some sort of investigation with the player um, involving the police. I don't know how we can actually get into their mindset that they, they, they deliberately made themselves bigger. So I don't know how VAR helps that. It just, it just gives the referee another look at it. But the referee still has to decide in their own opinion, is that a handball? And that's still subjective. It just takes more time. And the other thing that about VAR is, um, you know, moving away from handball and dives and blah, 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 and all this grey stuff that we're trying to make black and white through VAR, is the VAR, you know, VAR stands for Video Assistant Refereeing, so it's just a more referees, you know, so we're still going to have that level of subjectivity, only now it's behind the scenes, and we saw that, I'm, I'm obviously based in Scotland, and I've got Scottish parents, I'm a Scotland fan as well as an England fan, and I must admit, Scotland were not helped by VAR, I don't think Scotland went out purely because of VAR, but certainly wasn't helped by VAR, and one example is in the game against Japan, where and now I love Japan. I thought they're one of the most fun teams to watch. It's not. A, it's not nothing personal. But they had a penalty uh, for a pretty. I thought a pretty soft penalty that was given to them by VAR that the referee I don't think saw. Um, and then later on in the game, there was a handball uh, situation in the Japanese penalty box, and VAR didn't even sort of 
ask the referee to consult VAR, you know, the, the video replay. And then we saw the same in the France USA quarterfinal, I think, where France had a, a cross into the penalty area blocked by the hand of Kelly O'Hara. Now, in any other game, I think that would have been given, certainly VAR would have said, look, have another look at that. In this game, VAR didn't. So it, that's another example of, it's not just the referees on the pitch that are subjective in their decision-making, but the VAR is subjective in its decision-making as well. And it's just going to make the game so confusing. And it has done in Italy. I've watched, I used to watch a lot of Serie A, and I, was there, I watched a lot of the first season it was implemented there. And I, I initially was very open-minded about VAR. I actually thought, this is a great idea, because all the conspiracy theories will go away and everything will sort of be solved. And actually, it, 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 this made it even messier. You know, you just add in another layer of subjectivity onto pre-existing layers of subjectivity. So it, it's not for me, I'm afraid. Uh, but maybe I'm, I don't, know, I don't know what your opinion is on, on VAR. Yeah, I would have to grab. I've been so up and down um, on my opinion of VAR, to be honest, just because I agree it, it, the whole point, the aspect of it slowing the game down is definitely, you know, that's, that's a big reason or a reason why some people like to watch football, right? Because it's just, a, an, it's 45 minutes each half and there's, you know, little to no stoppages. Exactly. And then this just adds time to matches and everything because there was, there was points where whether a decision, um, a referee's decision took long or not, they were adding like six, seven minutes on the back of a half mm. or mm. the end of the game. Right. So, and, and that just, obviously if a team is down or if a team is up, that could really change a game, those seven minutes, yeah. um, whether it's for, for good or bad. But I thought that, um, last year in the World Cup, VAR was um, used a bit better, if if it's to be used at all. Mm. But in this, for for the Women's World Cup this year, I just kind of, um, I wasn't too happy with it all the time. But like you said, it, it's just so subjective. And, and to me, VAR just makes a referee question everything yeah. even more, you know, like it just... Well, yeah, I mean, it's true, isn't it? Because linesmen now can't put their flag up immediately because they're waiting to, do you know what I mean? So it's like mm-hmm. actually going to have linesmen that aren't as decisive as... We, I mean, do we want less decisive linesmen? I don't. I'd, I'd like more decisive linesmen. Yeah. That, you know, have the courage of their convictions, you know? So I, I agree fully. I think it's, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, the Men's World Cup, what you said is, is spot on. It was probably less noticeable last summer than it was this summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I still wasn't a massive fan of it, and I still found myself complaining about some of the VAR decisions. Yeah, definitely, because a, a few of them were obviously game, game-changing game decisions, and I guess that's kind of what they were trying to do in a positive way, but to me, it almost came out in a more negative way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it's the rule changes, isn't it? That's think- That's too, yeah, that was a big part of it as well. You know, with the with the goalkeepers not allowed off their line. I mean, that was that isn't the referee's fault or VAR's fault. Um, even I can't blame VAR for that. That was this terrible, you know, rule making and also a terrible decision to implement it. You know, at this tournament when you know teams and players haven't used it at all before. That that was bizarre to me. Um, you know, so that I think that that made it look even worse in a way. But I still don't like it, even <laughs> even without those new rules. Yeah, and and now we're gonna see that in the leagues come in a few weeks when they start up yeah. again right so yeah um 
that'll it'll definitely make for an, an interesting campaign this year to see how um, the leagues kind of take it and clubs take it in different ways and stuff like that. But I guess in to keep the topic of controversial things and maybe subjective things, how were your what were your thoughts on the first U.S. game? Thirteen now celebrating mm. every single goal like it was the first. What were your thoughts on that? Were you were you insulted by any of that? No, not really. Um, <laughs> uh, I watched I watched it back later. I didn't actually watch the game live, and so I'd heard about all this controversy, and then I watched the game, and I, I just thought this could be unbearable. But actually, I, I didn't I didn't really get what the fuss was about personally because um, watching each goal they scored. I mean, initially they were just celebrating the goals because they were scoring goals. I mean, I don't know what we want players to do when they score. <laughs> And then as the game went on, obviously it became more and more one-sided. And I did feel a bit sorry for Thailand, but I mean, you know, they gave a good effort. You know, these are players that probably expected to get hammered by the USA going into the game because of the differential in in talent and resources and everything else. So I don't think any of that was unexpected. And also, I don't think the celebrations were that bad, you know. Um, There was probably an element of them thinking... You know, we could, we could. I think they made. A, did they not break a record as well in terms of the score at a World Cup match? Yes, they did. Yeah. So I think that's reason enough to celebrate, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree, and I think the media kind of made USA come out, come off a little bit more maybe arrogant than they are. Um, yeah, you're not saying the media exaggerated something, are you? Um, might be saying, <laughs> might be hinting at something, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that that's no real surprise there. But um, I just I kind of want to. I'm curious to just, as to hear what what your favorite moment of this World Cup was, whether it be um, you know a specific moment or an entire match, or um, if you had a favorite player that really stood out to you that you know that you enjoyed to watch over the tournament. Some great questions, tough questions. I think the 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 best game for me was probably probably USA France. This for the atmosphere and the intensity and the build up. It maybe wasn't in a football sense the best game, but definitely with everything else around it, it was so much fun to watch. And I think a great example of of the quality on show as well at the tournament. Um, in terms of best moment, I think I'm going to be really obvious and say Rapinoe's celebration against. France mm-hmm. after the the sort of debate with with Donald Trump and stuff. Uh, I think I, I really enjoyed that personally, and I'm sure loads of other people did. Yes. And then, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I was I was thinking probably when Lee Alexander, the Scotland goalkeeper, saved the penalty against Argentina, and then that that was probably my best moment. And then also my worst moment was when they had to retake it because she was a centimetre off a line or something. Right. I, I don't think I've ever been. <laughs> I don't think I've ever gone from ecstatic to unbelievably angry as quickly as that. Yeah, see, and that just goes to like what we were talking about uh, just a few moments ago, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, those are those are good shouts. I think my favorite moment of the or my the best match, in my opinion, was maybe Sweden Netherlands. Mm. Um, I just kind of agree with you on. You know, Sweden were a very impressive side, and because I um, were kind of was kind of rooting for the Netherlands, it was a relief to see them go through, but maybe not so. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like 
not impressively, but like, you know, convincingly, I guess you could say. Um, And then, yeah, I think my player of the tournament as well, or favorite kind of just moment in general was anything Megan Rapinoe. I just think she, um, on and off the pitch, she really used the World Cup stage well. And, um, you know, you don't always see that in sports in general, but especially for, I think, women's women's sports and women athletes, Mm -hmm. they're usually expected to be, I don't know, like, very ladylike, not arrogant, um, not mm-hmm. showboating, all that kind of stuff. But I, I just so that's why I don't think the the U.S. Women's National Team were were anything of the sort. So I think that was probably my. She's just her in general. Her presence was my favorite moment of the World Cup. <laughs> Megan Rapinoe was general presence. I, I, yeah, I can't really <laughs> argue with that. Yeah. Um, who do you think's gonna win? Or what, did they announce goal of the tournament yet? Oh, uh, I'm not sure actually. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I think I know. I'll have to wrap my brains though in terms of goals because there were some there were some crackers. Um, Lucy Bronze. Lucy, yeah, Lucy was it against uh, against Norway? Yeah. Yeah, that was a good goal. That was a good goal. Um, oh, I'm probably going to forget some goals here, but this personally probably Lana Clellan's goal against Japan because that was a nice finish, uh, long range uh, on a left foot. So sort of got Scotland back into the game, gave him some hope of the of winning the match. So I'll maybe go for that, and then I'll regret it later when I listen back and realise I've forgotten like four or five other goals that I really enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I should have um, maybe prepared that a little bit more, sent a, a link <laughs> of all the ter- the goals of the of the tournament that are up for contention if they haven't announced it already by the time this is out. But um, I guess lastly, I don't want to keep you too long, Blair. But after such a positive year just a year in general for women's football, I think um, it's really it's really taking a turn for the better with, you know, big clubs finally getting a women's side, um, such as like Manchester United and um, stuff like that. I think it's just been a very positive year for women's football. So where do you think it'll be come the next World Cup in 2023? Um, again, a good question that I may not be the best qualified to, to answer, but I think uh, the, certainly the professionalisation of, of leagues in Europe seems to be underway. Um, in England, obviously, it's it started, and I think there's been a lot of conversation about in Italy, I think they're becoming more professional there. And also in Spain, I think Real Madrid have just announced they're going to have a team in, in the Spanish league, and there's going to be, I think, Spanish football streamed on, Spanish women's football streamed on YouTube. Uh, so there's lots of good stuff happening there. Um, you know, speaking from somebody who lives in Scotland, I can tell you that last year was the first time ever that there were Scottish uh, women's games shown on TV. So that was a real positive, and it allowed people like me to watch these these teams and get to know these these players uh, before Scotland went to the World Cup. So there's lots of positive stuff. I think it's just a case of keeping to you know keep putting it out there and, and people will watch it you know the, I mean audience records were broken in, in England with, with the way England were playing and I think some of the games it was a I think it was a record in terms of TV viewership on the BBC so uh, for this year so there's lots of positives to take from that and I just hope that the, the USA keeps developing that team in that league because personally I've already started watching some NWSL games I've never watched it before and I'm quite keen to keep watching these 
because they've got a lot. I mean, there's a lot of world class talent there, and I just hope they're able to keep it and, and also to keep developing um, their own players and, and and you know shine a spotlight on that league because uh, MLS is is the the only real competitor for football there, and, and I feel like MLS is, is is a good league, but you're not talking about the best athletes in their sport, whereas in NWSL you are. So mm-hmm. hopefully it just keeps going from cent to cent, and people keep televising it and advertising it. No, absolutely, I agree with with everything you said there, and I just I would I would hope maybe come 2023 there's at least some sort of expanded team or some announcement of some sort um, for. A Canadian women's club of the sorts, but um, before you go, where where can people find you? And don't be so humble this time, because I knew I recognized your name somewhere from places and websites that I've read you on. So, is there anything that you're you're currently working on, or, or and where can people find you? Um, so I'm, I'm working on a few things for a, a YouTube channel called T4 Football. Um, so we're doing a, a series called Sensible Transfers where we look at data and watch some video and suggest uh, players that, that, that teams in the English Premier League could sign on the men's side. Um, if people want to look at my Twitter profile, if they, if they wish to do that, I'm at Blaz underscore FTBL. So not the easiest thing to remember, but uh, that, that's where they can find me and, and most of my work as well. Well, that's great. Um, Blair, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me.